Okay, Brandon, thanks so much for joining us today on the third episode of the Digital Health Jungle podcast. The team here has been following your career and writing for some time now, and we're really excited to chat with you today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Always been appreciative of the big gorilla in healthcare technology. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. So I want to start off at the beginning of the of your career. I noticed you started at Epic, and it's obviously a great breeding ground for talent in our space. Can you discuss what you learned at Epic and how that may inform your product management philosophy or overall perspective on the market? Yeah, Epic, the evil empire is it, just kidding, but they uh, it's a great way like any enterprise company if you can if you know you're not addicted to startups to learn something deeply. It's school, but you're paid $85,000 or whatever. Like you're just these the first 3 months were teaching you healthcare, teaching you all sorts of classes about Epic and healthcare and privacy and everything you, you would never learn in school, maybe now in MBA or something, and you're paid. So it was great. It's hard work being an implementer, doing integrations at Epic is throwing you in, in, into the wild and into the jungle for you health gorillas. But you're dealing with do doctors of all different specialties. You're dealing with administrators. You're dealing with the technical team of the customers you put on. And that's learning. That's learning with a, an abundance of resources within Epic from 35 years of documentation and other implementations and all those things. Um, but it's a solid foundation. So that taught me so much about how the way things are done today. How are integrations and interfaces and interoperability done today? Today being 2018 when I left Epic. But it gives it five and a half years there. gave it a really solid foundation for where we are and where we might go. And what is the what was the catalyst that brought you into this space originally? We both know that building products that manage, ingest, retrieve, or aggregate data it's a difficult process. What was what was the primary reason that you decided to enter this? Space? I really thought it out and fell ass backwards into it. I was looking for a job. Somebody said, hey, come up to this place called Epic. It's up in Madison. That'll be fun. Right out of college. And that went up there and then got applied as a software engineer, got hired as a software engineer, and then said, wait a minute, I don't want to be in this small room in the dark darkness of Verona, Wisconsin, in the middle of winter. I want to do something maybe more customer facing. And they... Um, they said, okay, we got this other role. It's called EDI, which is electronic data interchange, which is the old pre-API way of exchanging, HL7. And you're, it's more customer facing. You'll, you have some technical skills. It's quite technical. And I didn't know what that meant, all the data formats and such. And then it's also some customer facing things. So I'm like, oh, that sounds sweet. And then was sucked into the black hole of interoperability and interfacing. So... Since then, that's all I've done and uh, everything that I think I will do with my career, it probably will be around that. But it's certainly changed in terms of APIs, in terms of interoperability between hospitals taking. And I'm sure having that engineering background was, it has been exceptionally helpful throughout your career, right? Yeah, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes you need the interpersonal skills if you're doing a product management or project management. A technical background is the superpower. So SQL or basics of, of any programming language, you can do things that accelerate. You can build small tools or small scripts. So I think a technical background or some set of technical skills is an accelerant, but not for every role. It's not what you necessarily need for every role to be successful. Absolutely. When building out your teams, which you've done at various organizations now, is an engineering background something that you look for in an ideal product manager? And really what I'm trying to unlock here is if you have any best practices you follow when building out your project management team. Yeah, I, it, it's not a one size fits all. And like anyone 
any course you go that goes, here's how product management is done. This is the formula and this is the way is like a way of doing it that is well-established that will work at a lot of places. But I think what you find is the types of products you're building vary immensely across tech, even within healthcare. Some are very SaaS and user-facing. Some are API products, some are database products. And like who you need for that and the skill set you need for that is different. And even within that, as you build the team, you might need somebody who's more customer-facing, more able to interview and understand user needs. You may need someone who is more technical and can think like down to the level of the engineers doing the work. And sometimes you need both. And sometimes you need neither. You just need someone who's uh, managing that. Like, you just have this whole spectrum of, of possible qualities you need for product management. You need and you, you need interviews, you need support, you need sales, you need management, you need Jira jockeying, you need QA. You, and there's more. And like the specific combination of what you might need in any role is different. None of the product management roles I've been have have needed the same, have never have had the same needed. Let's restart that one. Fuck, that was good. That was pretty good. None of the product management roles that I've been at have ever needed the same a specific set of skills or set of, I don't know what I want to say there. No, all the product management roles I've been, I've had, have had different needs and have needed different skills. Absolutely. So what I've noticed in various roles is when a company's young and growing and really in that startup phase, you might want to build a team, a team of folks that have a broad range of skill sets, right? And as the company matures and really optimizes its workflows is when specialists are start to be brought in and really enhance particular functions. Have you identified a, a moment in time or a specific set of criteria that would dictate be the beginning to hire specialists instead of somebody that may be able to help in various areas? Or is it always beneficial to have individuals that can contribute across the board? I think specialists are... You, you certainly see that trend, right? As an org grows, it becomes too big to possibly know every piece of product, every piece, every role of every product person selling that product, every role of every person doing CS or doing technical support or doing the engineering work. But I think empathy and understanding across the boundaries of the role is super important. So if I'm working with an engineer and I don't understand how they do day-to-day -day what they're doing, like what are the tools they're using? What are the... the their pain points and things like that, it's going to be hard for that for me to understand when they're blocked or when they're in a position to not do work and where they may be frustrated. Likewise, if you're an engineer and you're not trying to tie yourself up into the into what's happening, if you're not hoping to see what the end user does occasionally, I think that it just becomes this rote series of handoffs between roles that increases silos, that starts to get petty, and it goes from CS to product, it goes from product to CS, it goes to sales to CS. Every role has that. And that's why I like when I see people jump between these different roles. If you go from sales to CS, you go from product to CS or any direction, you build empathy that goes a long way in, in being successful in delivering the right value and being empathetic to the needs of users, both internal and external. So specialists happen hyper-specialized. I've always been a CS. Like, this is my job. Like, I don't let me wave the flag for CS and build my kingdom. Isn't great. This is like, for me, a cultural problem waiting to happen. So I think empathy across roles is super important to building healthy companies. 
Yeah, absolutely. I fundamentally agree. And really, there's no better way to build that empathy empathy than putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and experience their day to day and really understanding pain points, sharing wins, sharing losses, learning from each other. Yeah, I think it's great. So Brendan, I don't know if you know this or not, but when I originally started at Health Grill, I was brought on as a as one of our first content. Your content is very powerful in the space. You have a broad audience and some great opinions. And it was exceptionally helpful for me to get up to speed with the market and the interoperability regulations, both historical and future facing. In one of your posts, you wrote that developers don't want to learn your API. They want to solve a problem and move on. I agree with that. I think most developers would agree with. What's your approach to breaking through to the healthcare developer community? And what are some of the challenges in working with developers as customers? Yeah, I actually didn't write that. I copied it or quoted somebody. I think I linked to it. So don't want to take credit where it's not mine necessarily, but I think it is, I think it is powerful. And it just, it highlights that when you're selling products to developers with API specifically, it's, it can be hard to create community. And there's always this desire to be like, we're a developer community and there's like a Slack or a discord or whatever. But with APIs, especially it's like, this is a job I don't want to do. The thing that I'm using is this function, this API, this JSON post or get so they don't have to do this thing. So they don't want to think about it. And developer communities are fundamentally about identity. So you see really vibrant ones around things like DBT, which is a tool for analytics because they're living and breathing DBT all the time. You right. see it for Mirth, which is a tool for an interface engine from a, you know, a decade ago that was open source and it isn't anymore, but still popular. And there's a pretty vibrant community because the people working with them are working with it day in and day out. An API is like set it and forget it. And they just want it to work once they've done, they've solved that problem. And the reason they're paying for an API product is because it's not part of their identity. It's because it's a problem they chose actively not to solve and to, to do a buy solution. So I think that dichotomy, that like the desire to want to have that developer community and excitement about your API product, and then the fact that the actual realities of API products has always been changing for me, because I'm like, ooh, come, look, I'm excited about interoperability, aren't you? And some subset of the people using it might be or want to know the details, but a lot are on to the next one. They've done the Health Gorilla API for record retrieval. Now they're doing the direct messaging one. And like, they don't want to think about the old problem. They're thinking about the next one. So yeah, that's how I think about it. And that is, it's not necessarily a challenge. You just have to live with that fact or build other products that encourage that community or a set of products like a Stripe level set of products. Think about Stripe as a popular fintech API company. They have so many that by the time you're using all of them, you might be, you're like, maybe this is all you live and breathe. You are like the Stripe guy at your company. And once you have that ecosystem, yeah, maybe you can, maybe then it aligns with the the developer community. But I think it's an interesting thing that many young startups get frustrated with and they shouldn't be. They should just recognize that that aspect of community enthusiasm and stuff comes only as you build the ecosystem. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Totally understand. So I want, I want to pivot away a little bit from product management and dive into your experience with venture funding a little bit. So we've both been part of companies that have been, that have successfully raised funding over time and conveying the details of our products can be a challenge for investors who might not be an expert in APIs or health data or interoperability. I'm interested in what your experience has been working with investors or board members across companies like Zeus and Flexpa and what you feel like the role of an investor should be at a business like ours. 
Ooh, that's loaded. I'm going to piss off a lot of former and current investors uh, with this one. But no, it is for any type of product in any industry, it is, they look for parallels. They look for these, the VCs and investors are looking for models of how to think about things by comparing across industries, by other similar types within the industry. And there's an equivalency there that, especially in like technical products like APIs, can be confusing. It's very easy to be like, Redox is the same as Health Gorilla, is the same as Flexba, is the same as Human API. They're all doing interoperability. Like right. the actual nuance of what is the problem they solve? How do they solve it? Like that flows down is creating very different markets of interoperability. And I think a lot of the writing I do is because I have so many of the same like interviews or like conversations with somebody that I'm like, let me just write this down in the hopes that I can just point to an article in the future. Laziness that, that causes me to write content primarily. So like I write a lot of the API content so I can be like, all right, what you're asking about is this is what I think. This is the model of how I break down health girl up from, from particle, from redox, from all the different players that are in this space. Um, and it helps educate, I think, or VCs seem to like it when I talk to them and other people seem to like it, but it's, it, that is the only way that we get to a place where we have a common understanding of some of the different sub markets within a very technical, very complex technology product. Right. Now, now that Flexpa is uh, top of mind, I'd love to know how you got involved and then what subcategory you believe that Flexpa operates in and who a few other current players in that space are. Sure. Yeah. So Flexby, I've been advising, I do some advisory work on, in addition to my day job and some angel investing and scouting and, and all those good things. Flexba, I got involved with in March of this. They had read some things that I had written. They reached out to me and I really liked them. I said, this team is lights out. And then as my life changes, I, I mean, my wife and I are expecting a girl in March. So that is something that Caused me to look at a bit more of a remote job, a job I could do that was more from home. As my last job at Zeus was more Boston-based. Uh, I started to mention to Andrew, the CEO, saying, hey, I'd like to, I'm looking at other uh, opportunities. What do you think is good out there? And he, he was like, what about Flexbook? I'm like, all right. And then as I dug in more, I realized this is so in line with all the things I've written, all the things I've been working on historically. And every single person on the team is just like, wildly good at what they do. So it was a natural fit. Joined as head of product about a month ago. Uh, Flexba is, I gotta hate to use this phrase, but there's, it is plaid for claims data. Like that is what it does. And, and plaid for X or stripe for Y gets overused. And I have an old article like lampooning people for overusing this, but in the most literal fashion possible, the patient, or in this case, but the consumer for plaid, uses their lo their login credentials to pull their information. And for Plaid, that's their bank information, right? You pull down that into some FinTech app and you use the bank transactions or account information to do some workflow, embedded finance. What we're doing is embedded health finance. It is the user logging in with their payer credentials to pull their claims data and their coverage data and any clinical data that the payer may have. Even though there's all these interoperability companies that like sharply delineates us from a lot of them, from Health Gorilla, for instance, because most of them are doing clinical data from providers, from traditional health providers, from labs, from pharmacies, from social determinants of health to 
hype your guys' new offering. Hey, everyone, uh, Health Gorilla is offering the social terminants of health. They are unique in that facet. There we go. My bank account is one, two, three. Just just kidding. But there's a focus on the clinical data for obvious reasons, but we're focused on that health, on healthcare's financial data. And we think that there's a lot of opportunity to create novel solutions because there's been no path to get clinical data or claims data before. You can certainly get clinical data through different networks and HIEs and direct connections and meaningful use three APIs for a long time. There's still a lot of work to be done there, but this claims data that we're helping people get access to can power so much. So I think that's the biggest differentiator. There's some predecessors that have done similar things in terms of more authentication and or patient authentication to pull typically from providers, but then as CMS APIs have come online from them as well. There's one-up health, there's human API. There's a lot of like screen scrapers that pull down claims and they're not particularly tech forward or API savvy. You know, that we're talking about claims data. I want to kind of transition over into a few big ticket items. One of which is Tefka and QHIN, right? And what type of exchange exchanges may or may not be mandated in the future to respond to. There's a ton of publicity around companies announcing their intent to pursue a QHIN designation right now. And a lot of the industry is still trying to grapple with how it's going to affect them and who needs to join, what problems is it really going to solve in the short term and long term. How would you break it down? How would you break down the QHIN designation and trusted exchange framework and common agreement for folks that are trying to understand its relevance and impact that we can expect? Yeah, Tefka is largely care quality, lifted and shifted. So there's a lot of similarity between the care quality framework and the Tefka. And, Tefka. and then so with different names and different acronyms. So like care quality has a directory of organizations that can query each other and that are on the network. Likewise, Tefka exchanges these CDA documents to start. Likewise, care quality. The biggest, and then QHIN is basically like a care quality implementer. These people that certify with care quality, same with the QHINs with Tefka, except on steroids, right? There's a lot more small rules that they'll have to implement, like the flow down agreements. So as an implementer, you could be like, hey, like I can have my own set of rules for my customer. And like largely there's some stuff that flowed through from care quality, but like it's much stricter for Tefka, which is good because as you have a human centipede of the implementer and then someone else selling to someone else, like without the flow downs, you see some really shady shit. People turning what they call the treatment purpose of use into patient access purpose of use. Then they turn it into, let me sell it to pharma. And like the margins grow at each of those steps and control and visibility of that HIPAA breaking pathway is not visible. Like it's just invisible right now. So Tefka eradicates that largely with the flowdowns and also eradicates that shadiness that's present today through individual access. Today, care quality is only treatment purpose of use, only providers providing care and giving their data back to the network can participate. And even though there's other purposes of use, they're not mandated, so nobody's doing them. Tefka requires individual access with strong identity. So checking the patient is who they are but then giving the patient access to their data. And like by having that legal pathway to do that's required to be responded to, that's humongous. That's just like game changing if we can get there. And we need to get there because again, the like sort of human centipeding thing is just not good for HIPAA, not good for the patient knowing and controlling their data. Absolutely. 
you have any thoughts or perspective on the other four treatment purposes that will eventually be enforced by TEFCA? You think about public health, benefits determination, healthcare ops, payment, any perspective on how those may impact the industry as a whole? So why are they not in there? They were originally in there, right? Like why, what happened is the question. Right. And vested interests push back because there's like other typically EHR specific, but sometimes healthcare specific pathways to retrieve that chart data and charge charge some money. And that goes away, that commoditizes if you put it on there. I think winning patient access would be a big enough win that the people in TEFCA, uh, like running TEFCA looked and said, wait, we've been languishing because under the uh, under the Trump administration, TEFCA did jack shit for four years, like no movement whatsoever. And then Mickey Tripathi, Biden administration picks it up and says, this is what we're going to do. And if we have to make some sacrifices to scope, let's do it. And that's like noble and just like we should. I think it will be hard to get people to switch to something. You really, with these things, with these big networks, it's really hard to upgrade the network. SureScript unable to get their network upgraded. It takes years for Verizon or any or AT&T to upgrade their networks. When you have thousands of nodes or hundreds of nodes and to add new features and to iterate is not, it's not the speed of SaaS. It's, right. it's slow. It stinks that payment and operations and stuff are not in there. I think the fire roadmap is really cool, which is not a treatment, like adding another purpose of use, but take the wins where we can get them. If we can get individual access services that gives so much freedom to let mediate through the patient. So the payer could say, Brendan, let's go get your data. I say, fine. And then like, we get to do it through, mediate it through me. So right. that's sweet. That's a win. And we should count those wins. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a various short-term benefits that, that the industry and the players within the industry and consumers at the end are going to feel with this with Tefka V1. But I, everybody's looking forward to those additional exchange purposes kicking in sooner than later. Another big ticket item right now has a lot to do with these tech giants entering the healthcare space, right? Most recently with Amazon's purchase of One Medical while shutting down Amazon Cares. Uh, we know that Apple lets you store medical records and Google Care Studio is picking up some traction as well. I'm interested in your thought on how you think this ends with the tech giants entering the space. Are we going to see more success than failures? Do you think there's going to be a clear leader or winner in the next decade? And who do you think has got the biggest advantage? It's going to be Oracle, right? The big tech giant. <laughs> but, but jokes aside, what I, I think what we're seeing now is like they've, they've, they poke around the edges in all these different ways, the tech giants. And the things that are sticking are the efforts that are closest to the core competencies of those tech giants. It's so lo it's like logical. But for Apple, they had this effort to have providers and have a provider organization, and then they shut it down. And now they're doing the consumer pathways of aggregate all the endpoints, pulling your data to Apple health records. So logical because they are consumer facing at their heart. They have a, they have the Apple, the iWatch, and everything like that. Like why not just have as much health data there as, as possible and have a consumer facing patient facing product is smart. Google care studio is an interesting one. I think there's this innate fear of Google. There's this innate fear of their aggregation possibilities. I think it put like them as an enterprise, that's an enterprise product. Is that close to their core competencies of consumer facing products with ads backing them? No, but they have like immense talent and technical talent and some of the leading 
like interoperability and uh, healthcare minds, like Vivian Neely and stuff like that. So uh, that one's an interesting bet for me. It doesn't align with core competencies, but certainly Amazon does. Amazon Care and then now One Medical and PillPack, all are these things that fit that mod- the idea of if I want at my home consumerize like the ultimate consumer experience, I'm going to have it from Amazon. We have Amazon Prime level service. The medications will be delivered to my door. One medical is the, the ultimate of primary care, the very bougie primary care that's super nice. It is super nice. I was I had one medical last year and oh man, I was able to peak demand, get in and get a vaccine. So it is really nice. And like that experience, convenience is something people will pay for. So they're all present and doing their thing. Microsoft is building, Microsoft has the Microsoft stack and that sells in hospitals and they can sell Azure and they can sell Teams as I add on to the EHR nuance that, that fits their core competency of enterprise sales. Will there be a winner? Is like such, a, I always find it to be like a weird question of what does that mean? Will they just suddenly like everything else is gone? No, I, I don't think there's precedent there. I think what they'll do is eat bites of the apple and be part of the overall equation. They have so many resources to throw at these problems that it's impossible to imagine that they won't have solutions that fit into the overall ecosystem somewhere, but it's not winner take all for them. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of the definition of winner can be ambiguous, but something I'm interested in is longevity, right? Who's going to, who's going to make an impact, a lasting impact on the industry. And I think that is just a, an answer we're all going to be looking forward to finding out. It's going to. Yeah. Yeah. If you like uh, Apple is the easy layup answer of like, in terms of pure play health, if they can tick the needle up 0.1% on heart health or 1% on heart health with these consumer facing devices and all this, the stuff they're doing with it, like now my Apple watch, like has all this chance of telling me I have like arrhythmia and stuff or like whatever, that's a 1% of 80% of people who have a smartphone or whatever in America is a big win, is a big health win. And I think like the other ones, like Care Studio is a big bet could fail. It's not aligned with their core competency, the distraction with Meditech and stuff like that. Amazon and One Medical, it's another virtual first care. So if you believe in the growth of virtual first care and digital health provider organizations, they're in the equation. Now, is it the end all of? No, but I think they'll exist in 10 years and be national in scope in 10 years, just like they are today. I want to combine our last, the last two topics we discussed with the QHIN and tech giants. I'm interested in, with, with individual access becoming mandated under the trust exchange framework and common agreement. Do you anticipate a resurgence in startups launching products that are going to be consumer focused? There already is a, like a resurgence, like you have Roe and all these different, depends on what you mean by consumer focus. If you mean personal health record, yes, but there lacks a compelling value add for most of the buying population. So if you imagine a population on a bell curve, very sick people, care about. They want a PHR. They've seen a lot of doctors, like aggregation is super important to them. And there's a product there. Who do you charge? How do you monetize is where it comes in. Do you charge this really sick person for this service? No, I don't think that's true. So I think where consumerization goes is actually embedded health is the capability for individual access embedded into Lovongo, embedded into Row, embedded into your iPhone, embedded into the places that you actually do things and taking bits and pieces to help you do something better. We see this in fintech. 
the personal finance manager is you know, mint.com and all that shit is used, but not by everybody. Where you actually see it is I'm going for a loan. Instead of typing over all my expenses, I can just link my bank account. That's where you see the impact is embedded finance. And you'll see the same in health of when I need to just click and sync my data, it'll just be there, be baked into my software and be baked into that experience. So I think that's the that's how consumerization of, of individual access will shake out. And I think that's more exciting, like significantly more exciting than the idea of just the holding tank. If there's going to be a PHR that I'll use, it's one that I can't just aggregate my data, but that I can see my upcoming appointments, that I can schedule my upcoming appointments, that I can do pay my bills all in one place. Like the actual administrative tasks are the PHR that appeals to the masses that appeal to the healthy middle of the bell curve. And so there's, I have an article, Indiana Jones and the, pers- the personal health record that, that gets into this more from a couple of years ago. And it's, it gets into the fact that most of the healthy people don't want to care that much about their health, except to stay healthy. And that's administrative tasks. And that's maybe some fitness. Right. Outside of the embedding the data into more of a digestible format, you think there's any other tactics that can be used that will increase consumer engagement over time. It's funky to say that there may need to be some education, right? You'd like to think that people take their health exceptionally seriously and you don't need to educate them on the importance of certain data, but is there a certain level of education that needs to take place or what's your perspective there? I just, I think there is, but I also think if you build it into the natural workflows or, or leisure flows of people that the apps they're using and things like it, it, then you have more effect on than if you say, you must go use your personal health record. Like, I, like telling me to go download like a personal finance manager, or personal health record. I do it because I love this tech. I'm really like, it's, I'm obsessed with this sort of shit, but I'm not everybody. And it, I don't think I would be if I wasn't in health tech doing that motion. So I don't think it's like this morality play of you must do this, right? Like morality plays very rarely work. Like electric vehicles did not take off until suddenly they're inexpensive and everywhere. And if there's charges everywhere, you make things easy and embedded and like logical and then the technology takes hold if you make them a morality play for a lot of people like not living like a heathen like slovenly heathen is like a morality play unfortunately in america so like when you want people to have these good behaviors make it easy for them make it incentivized and then it becomes just commonplace and then we see better exercise and better more regular primary care checkups and like all the behaviors we Brendan I can't thank you enough for your time today it was great getting to know you and I'm stoked for future collaborations with you and Flexpa for the listeners out there I encourage you to follow Brendan on his Twitter account healthbjk and you can also check out all of his writing at healthapiguy.substack.com really great work and encourage everybody to check that out thank you so much Brendan hey thanks a lot Ryan talk to you later